In Session with Dr. Farid Hulakwi. Let me start again. Uh, good evening. Welcome to In Session. I am your host, Dr. Fadi Halakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. We had a little issue with the mic to start the show. My apologies. Um, you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The books of uh, the week for this week is A Sense of Self by Veronica O'Keen. A Sense of Self by Veronica O'Keen. Look forward to reading that this week and sharing it with you on next Monday's show. Uh, the book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight is The Quick Fix by Jesse Singal. The Quick Fix, Why Fad Psychology Can't Cure our social ills. And just the title itself really got my attention, The Quick Fix, because uh, as you might know, things I talk about on the show, I'm very much a, a proponent of making sure we look at issues the right way, that we recognize that most things we want to address in life that are important, that are meaningful, they take a long time to fix. There's no quick fix to most major issues. And unfortunately, what we see with things that are presented online from social media to people that do even things like motivational speaking, not to say that that's bad, but at times coaches and different people who you might see online will try to sell you a quick fix. If you do these three things, your relationship will be amazing. If you follow me, I'm going to transform your life really easily in a very easy way. And as living beings, essentially, we are always looking for quick fixes, or in a sense, we're looking for ways to give less but get more. As a living being, you have to maintain homeostasis, you have to get enough energy to survive. So it's understandable that we have this pull towards finding the easy way out. What's the shortcut? Um, even like things like life hacks, some of them can be helpful, but usually in the mental health realm, a lot of things that are looked at as life hacks are really trying to use a shortcut to actually avoid doing the hard work that it takes to get there. Now, this book does address that in some ways, the quick fix, but as the title or the subtitle implies, why fad psychology can't cure our social ills, Jesse Single goes through various psychological phenomenon that have become popular over the years, in recent years. Things like grit, power posing, the implicit association test used to measure unconscious bias. And he tells the story, or essentially shares the story, of how these different features became popular or well-known, but how the research backing them up at times was a little bit lacking or not so clearly showing what they claim to say. 
And then they kind of took on a life of their own and became so popular that it was taken to be some kind of a truth, that this is um, a truth in psychology and there's nothing else about it. And I must say uh, humbly that I have to acknowledge that at times I've talked about a few of these things on my show, even done books on them. Um, and now I see that the research behind them, or at least the claims that were made, might not be as clear as the authors made them seem. And so for me, that was interesting and eye-opening to see certain things that I took for granted as a truth because of how it's been presented and maybe my own lack of really looking at things uh, objectively enough or really paying attention, I missed that maybe there was more to what was going on than what was presented. And so as I mentioned, the social ills, he talks about how sometimes people will use these individualistic types of ways of solving things. Like, for example, if students are not doing as well as some other students, it's because of something like grit. Or if we teach them grit to be passionate and have perseverance, then it'll overcome the academic disparities we see, for example, between white children and black children. And it might not be presented that way exactly, but it makes our focus go more towards these individualized ways of healing, something that might be more of a social problem, which is what he is talking about in that subtitle. And so, yes, I think that can be the case, although individual solutions are very important as well, and we don't want to lose sight of them. But he's saying that we might actually take our attention away from what might be more important by thinking, you know what, we can just individually solve these issues. So. Um, the first chapter has to deal with self-esteem and how in the 80s and 90s this became a huge craze that all the problems we have come down to self-esteem and if we just raise all the kids self-esteem we will no longer have a lot of the problems that we have and so you can see that the logic can make sense and also the concept has value which is true of all the concepts that come up in this book Obviously, self-esteem is very important. How you measure it, of course, can be problematic. And can you raise it is also something quite challenging. But often what we see happening with these types of things is it becomes, you know what? Um, if we make this a, you know, thing that's in all of the schools, well, then we will just raise everyone's self-esteem. When actually the research doesn't show that self-esteem might create the solutions they're talking about. And then additionally, there's not even proof that actually if we do these things, it's going to raise self-esteem. So it's not to say that self-esteem doesn't matter, or that that's definitely my opinion. It does matter, but it is complicated to try to understand what that means. And if you saw what people were doing, and you still see this to try to raise self-esteem, oftentimes it's saying things like, uh, let's, you know, you're amazing, you're wonderful, you're special in this way, you're special in that way, which aren't bad things, but oftentimes it's not really contributing to self-esteem in a way that's really meaningful. Even when I work with clients and we notice that self-esteem is something they want to look at, you know, you have to do something that makes sense for you. Affirmations can be helpful. They're not going to fix your self-esteem, but they can help, but uh, has to be something that feels right to you. If you're someone that looking in the mirror and telling yourself, you're awesome, you're amazing, whatever your mantra is, if that doesn't feel right for you, then 
that's not going to help you and it's not going to help every child get better as well so self-esteem was the first segment or chapter in this book that he he looked at uh, another one that comes up is a chapter called of posing and power now you maybe heard about this research and i talked about the ted talk that was uh, done on this topic and that makes you let me make a comment before i go into the posing about ted talks uh, i'm not anti-ted talks but i do think i used to be much more in favor of them than i am now for the exact reason that this book uh, is trying to point out, the exact uh, issue that this book brings up, that we are often simplifying a very complicated idea into something that makes a nice story, that's catchy, in a 12 to 15 minute type of a talk. So they can be helpful, they can be good, but I think what's happened is by trying to make these talks more popular, trying to make these ideas be able to go viral, uh, people have simplified and oversimplified issues that are much more complicated and that unfortunately shares sometimes things that's a misinforming rather than informing. So sometimes you might think, well, at least we're teaching people something, but sometimes we're misteaching them something. We're showing them something that isn't quite true. And so that can be problematic, and I think it's something that needs to be addressed. And I'll talk about this issue throughout the book as well, or in discussing the book. So the power posing, there was this research that seemed amazing, where if people would hold a powerful pose, kind of like shoulders back uh, in some kind of way that looked powerful or felt strong, felt strong, then if they were asked to do something, they would be more confident and perform better than people that held some kind of like a, a low power pose. For example, maybe kind of crouching over or sitting in a way where they're kind of very into themselves and looking weak. And so they would do it for just two minutes and then they would say, voila, look at this magical result of how much more confident people became. And so it became this notion that if we just do that, Maybe we can overcome lots of things. And like he says, even it was in a way presented as some form of overcoming disparities between men and women in the workplace. Maybe if women just power pose more, they'll be more confident when it comes to meetings because sometimes they'll say women might not be called on as much or might not speak as much in certain meetings or classes where participation is important or they don't apply for certain jobs as much until they feel they're overqualified or very qualified, whereas men might go for a job they're not very qualified for. And so, as he says again, this almost makes it seem like the individual can cure the problem where maybe it's, pro it's more of a social issue or has more structural or systematic causes to the problem. Now, when they looked at the research a little bit more, or tried to replicate these kinds of research, this power posing, it seems like they were really exaggerating what the true findings were, that actually it was not as impactful as they said to um, do this power posing the way that it seemed. And so all this research came about, as I said, I did a segment on my show several years ago, if not more, on this topic because it seems so amazing and when you see research from stanford harvard yale other high profile institutions it, it makes us think we should believe it. it there must be some validity and truth to what they're talking about and i also want to make it clear that it's not to say for example these researchers that came up with the power posing were committing fraud or were intending to manipulate people to try to make money or get attention and things of that sort. But it does appear that the pressures that exist in multiple ways. So to begin with, 
professors at institutions, there's this saying, publish or perish, meaning if you don't publish some uh, papers in journals and well-respected journals, you no longer will be a professor, you will perish. And in order to get tenure and to get some um, security in your job, you have to make sure you're publishing and to publish means you have to present new types of theories or new results, or you have to find results that are considered meaningful and impactful in some way. And so there can be a pressure to find some kind of significant result, which I might touch on a bit about what that means. Um, and as a result, there's a pressure to look for something. You're doing all this uh, research. Let's see if we can find some result that is important. So the professors have it and then with the digital age and clicking being the way to get basically making money, if you can get people to click on some article, journalists from a variety of uh, lenses or degrees of uh, media are trying to find interesting articles. So they, you know, make the research into something that is exciting, that might grab your attention, you know, women worse at men at this, you know, that's going to make you look, what is it? Even though if you actually look at the results, you'll see it was like a 1% difference or something very meaningless. But if they posted an article, not so much of a difference between men and women on this thing, people don't get as interested. It's not going to go, you know, as viral or create as much attention. So the media is also unfortunately contributing to this issue and the way that they, um, you know, are putting information out there, but you kind of see a, uh, you know, a mutuality there where the press releases from universities are becoming more geared towards what they know the media is looking for. So they present things, you know, says amazing results or uh, really significant proof of this or support for this in a way that might be exaggerating slightly the claims. Maybe they justify it to themselves thinking, well, we want to get this information out. Let's put it in a way that makes it reach the most amount of eyes or ears. So they might do that. Um, and we have this cycle where research that really isn't that solid is being promoted and put out there. And it's really, really unfortunate because we are being misled by this research. And actually, psychological research is in a way uh, reaching a crisis of sorts that the way they have done research the way research has been done in the field of psychology, social psychology, has not really had the most rigor behind it. And some of the ways that things have been done have not been quite up to par. And so after the break, what I'll do is I'll continue on the book, The Quick Fix by Jesse Singal, um, about how a lot of the research that we've been looking at or thinking is proving certain things about human psychology, social psychology, might not quite be as solid as we thought it was. So let's go to a commercial break and we'll be right back. Welcome back. Um, continue the conversation on the book, The Quick Fix by Jesse Singal, Why Fad Psychology Can't Cure Our Social Ills. So I was talking in the last segment about power posing and it's not to say that it might have zero effect, but that it's probably a minimal effect and that the way the research presented it made it seem much, much um, bigger of an effect than it actually is. So that's kind of what all of these are about, is that, that these fixes, it doesn't mean that there's no validity to the, to the issue that's being discussed, but that they're actually in a bit being oversold. So another one, again, going through my almost like Hall of Fame of 
books or things I've talked about that actually turned to have less validity than I even thought they did was Grit. Maybe you've heard of this. It's actually a very famous book by Angela Duckworth. Famous, it's only been out for a few years, but has been on the bestseller list for a long time um, throughout that time. That uh, this issue of grit, and maybe you've thought, heard that before as just a concept. If someone is gritty, it means they're tough. Um, and so grit means passion and perseverance together. And in that book and in her TED Talk, Angela Duckworth talks about grit like it's just this, you know, something that will solve all, you know, your problems, can help people, you know, get through um, kind of any issues that they are having in a way. And turns out that it's not that it's not good, of course it's good, but that it might be a bit overrated is what we're talking about or dealing with. And so um, grittiness or being having grit is important, but it's also similar to another concept called conscientiousness. And that's something that he talks about in the book as well, that at times ideas can be presented as if it's a totally brand new concept that we have never heard of before or totally different from everything else, but maybe it's quite similar to other things that we've already looked at or other things that we have um, studied. And so grit could have been one of those issues that might have had that same problem, where it was presented as if grit is something so different, but really it might not be that different from other things that were studied. And the research again was over time shown to not be as strong and as conclusive as was originally presented and talked about, where grit was more important than everything from IQ to um, you know, background to whatever it was, grit was the thing that mattered. So itself, grit was shown to be overrated. And also raising or creating grit is not something that has easily been shown to do. So here again, we might see an issue that might make the focus become all we need to do is get people to be more gritty and we're going to solve educational problems to realizing that it's not actually that simple at all. And so um, for me, that was interesting because I Grit was one of the books of the week from a, a couple of years ago. Um, and I thought it was something that is very important to share with everyone. But as it turns out, it's important, but maybe very much overrated and overstated the impact that it might have. Um, you know, so he goes in the book with different uh, situations similar to this, of, you know, from grit, as I mentioned, self-esteem, power posing. Now, one that was really interesting, and I think maybe the one that most relates to this topic is bias. And so you maybe have heard, very likely have heard, and again, I've talked about this concept, the tests that I'm gonna mention, um, and also some books related to this issue because it's been such a hot topic in psychology and social psychology. And that's the implicit association test. So you maybe have heard of it. I'm sure many of you listening have taken it. I remember taking it at least once, maybe several times. And this was a test that was developed in Harvard, I believe, to determine unconscious bias. So unconscious bias means, I might ask you, do you like Iranians? Do you like men, women, LGBTQ members, all different types of people? And you, let's say, might even say yes. And so explicitly and consciously, you might be very accepting and loving of a certain group. However, what this research or this instrument was trying to measure is, do you have unconscious biases? And so do you actually, maybe let's say you like a certain group or you think you like them, but you might in an unconscious way have some negative 
feelings or associations about them. Now, another thing that's true about a lot of these concepts that comes up in this book is that they're looking at something that we're pretty sure is real. So I'm certain that there's such a thing as unconscious bias that people might think explicitly and not just think, they also want to believe, let's say they don't have any prejudice, that they're not a racist person, they don't discriminate in any way or let's say in a specific way. But I do believe that we might harbor or carry with us certain negative feelings or certain feelings about different groups that we might not even be aware of. So the concept seems very, very real. And to me, I, I think it's very real, unconscious bias. The problem is it might be that this test the implicit association test actually does not measure bias, unconscious bias, in an accurate way. It might have sometimes some ability to do so, but to think of it the way it became, as in if we figure out that this test is telling you you have these discrepancies, that's a measure of bias and how much bias you have. So for those of you not familiar with the test, essentially what they do is something like pair certain types of words together. For example, they say, you know, if you see a white face or a good word, click one button. If you see a bad word and a black face, pick another word or vice versa. And essentially what they're looking at is, is it harder for you to associate good with certain groups or bad with certain groups? So they might find that when you're reacting and looking at your reaction time, it turns out that you have a harder time associating good with black faces and bad with white faces or vice versa. And if you have one of these types of biases, it might be a reflection of an unconscious bias for or against certain groups. And so when this test came out, it was revolutionary. People were so excited. People thought we found a way to measure unconscious bias, which might have a significant impact in reducing different types of prejudice and discrimination. And so it really blew up. I talked about it on my show many times um, from the test itself. At least two books come to my mind where it was prominently featured in those books. Uh, and I thought, you know, this seemed very real. And again, maybe it was me not questioning things enough. Still, I'm trying to understand what the test is measuring and what's going on. But I, I missed something and I think I thought I knew what was going on much less than it turns out I did. And it seems like most of us did that we're looking at these tests. But when they've done more research, looking at what is this test really measuring, they're finding that it's quite unreliable and doesn't really have as much validity as we thought. So it, it turns out that we it might not be measuring your unconscious bias because sometimes people even would be affected by things that were not likely related to unconscious bias. So when people tried to replicate the studies, replicate the research, they were not really able to do so with any kind of um, consistent results. And so again, this doesn't mean that unconscious bias is not real, or it doesn't mean that racism is not real or any kinds of prejudice or discrimination are not real. And I think that's unfortunately what some people get afraid of is that we're saying this test doesn't measure something. It doesn't mean the thing doesn't exist. It just means we haven't found a test to possibly measure this concept yet. Um, and so many people might react against that. And I think that was part of my own, uh, you know, bias. That's funny, kind of ironic. My own bias about looking at this test, because I'd seen some people post some things questioning the implicit association test. And I think I just thought, oh, it's just people who are, 
you know, trying to push some kind of agenda or say something. So I don't think I really took a clear look at this research. But then through this book, and then I looked up other things as well, it does seem that it was definitely, again, overstated. And the effects or the um, concept that this test was saying it was measuring, maybe it's not actually measuring that test. Uh, again, discrimination definitely is real. Unconscious bias to me is definitely real. But this test might not be measuring that concept. And so that was eye-opening for me too. And as I, I mentioned, as I went through this book, there's lots of things that I took as some kind of a psychological truth about people as individuals and as groups that it looks like might not be the case, or at least we don't know the whole story yet. And we have to wait before we can say we really understand this concept or this construct. And so that to me was eye-opening and important and something to try to keep in mind as I'm looking at new research. As someone who's been through graduate school, we of course look at research methodology and statistics. And so I'm in some ways well-versed in some of those things, but we can still get caught up in certain ideas because of how they are presented. And especially because uh, people from certain institutions might say, this is my research and this is what it proves we really give a lot of credit to that. And in some ways, that's not bad. I do think institutions do have a reputation and they do have a reason to be trusted to some degree. But this brings us back to the issue I mentioned in the last segment, which is so important, that psychological research has to really take a look at itself. And that's something that comes up, especially in a chapter, I think it's the seventh chapter, about uh, replicating certain research. So as it turns out, a lot of times, research papers that became really big or concepts that became big and very famous studies, when people tried to replicate those same studies, they didn't get the same results. And so it brings the question, the validity of that original study. This doesn't mean that those original researchers were lying. There are incidents when people have done that, and he talks about one or two of them in the book, where people have made up data, have uh, modified or edited data or fudged the data to get a certain result that they're looking for and other things that they've done. But the way that research works in psychology or in lots of fields is what you're essentially looking for is we're trying to see if there's some difference. So if we say uh, we want to see if this um, educational program I'm going to create is going to improve grades for math, let's say. And what we want to do is we want to say people who get my educational course and people don't, we're going to compare them. And we want to see if there's a difference. It has to reach what we call statistical significance, which means that we don't think it's likely that if my test doesn't do anything, we would see this type of a difference. So we wouldn't see the students who get my course get the scores that they're getting if it's not helping them in some way. So it's we're saying that it's not that it proves, but it gives evidence that my course is having an impact in raising the grades of these people. So when you hear this term statistically significant, in a way it's a misleading term or misleading in the sense that it gets understood wrong because when you hear something is significant, if I tell you I have significant news, that means I'm telling you that it's very important, that it's very meaningful, that it's a big deal. But when something has statistical significance, all it means is that what we're observing is not likely to be due to chance, 
But it doesn't necessarily mean, one, that it can't be by chance, and two, that even if it's true, the impact is something important. So I might be able to do some research to show that when we do this thing versus that thing, uh, it definitely raises kids' grades. But it's because I've done this test on 5 million people, the more your sample size goes up, the less the effect size has to be to show a difference. So even if people do a little bit better, so let's say the kids that get my course, instead of a 85, they get a 85.2, but I can consistently show that or show in the data that it's very clear and it reaches the standard of statistical significance. Then when I publish my paper, or if we put it in an article, it can say, my course causes statistically significant advantages for students. And that wouldn't be lying, that would be telling the truth. But the amount it would be improving students' work would be very, very almost meaningless. So we're saying it's significant, but the actual impact could be meaningless. So this gets into some of the nitty gritty of how research is done, how it's published, or the words they use to describe certain things, which can definitely mislead even scientists themselves, but especially people who might not be as familiar with the research, to make you think that the research is telling you something that is such a big deal. This is statistically significant. But again, statistical significant doesn't mean actual significance in life. And that's something that's very important to differentiate. And sometimes researchers will look for this statistical significance and they can do lots of things and he talks about them throughout the book. And this points to the issue I brought up earlier where there's so much competition for people doing research who are generally professors at institutions to publish something and to meet this level of statistical significance that they sometimes do certain things that aren't necessarily purely unethical but really when you break it down is a bit unethical in the sense that they're trying to get a result rather than try to find the truth or they're trying to do some calculations to be able to show something rather than really look for what's out there in the world and that's obviously very very unfortunate and so in the next few weeks i will actually look at a book that's um, really dissecting this issue in psychological research often when i'm reading a book you know, he mentioned probably 10, 20 books, maybe more in, in his own book. But this one I bought because I think it'll be meaningful for me to read because as a psychologist, I want to see what's happening in psychological research, try to understand what the problems are and see if there's any way, even though I don't do research, but in what I talk about, so that we don't keep going down a wrong path where we try to look for these really big, exciting uh, phenomenon that are not actually there that we try to say, you know what, we figured this out, but it turns out it's actually not quite there. And so this book for me was a bit, you know, as I said, humbling to see certain psychological concepts that I've talked about on my show that I thought I was very real were not necessarily as um, rigorously done. The research was not and the concepts are not as clearly defined as the authors have said and people have talked about. So I, I found that really fascinating. I'm glad I did read this book, which was The Quick Fix why Fad Psychology Can't Cure Our Social Ills by Jesse Singal. All right, let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I uh, was talking about the book, The Quick Fix by Jesse Singal. And, uh, you know, in this book, he does address and almost, I wouldn't say attack, but shows a lot of criticism for 
different theories in psychology that have gained a lot of popularity in recent years. Uh, things like power posing that I mentioned, grit, the implicit association test. And he talks about something he calls prime world, which is this idea that comes up in a lot of um, psychology research saying that when you are uh, primed by certain things, it's going to have a huge impact on you. And so I think he's saying what they're doing is they're going too far with those things. Like thinking if you, you know, see an American flag that's six months later, it's still going to impact you in some way. Sometimes research will say something that extreme that doesn't really seem to make sense because if you think about it, they're doing research and they might expose someone without them even knowing it to an American flag and say, let's look at the results. But in people's day to day, they get exposed to an American flag in different ways and different degrees. So it would be hard to say that that's really what's going on. So I think he definitely is right to say it's gone too far. Uh, but priming itself, and he's not that he says it doesn't exist, is very important because, as you've heard me talk about, especially in recent shows, but in general, the brain is a predicting machine, meaning that, of course, it's taking in information. We used to think of it, I even remember being at UCLA in undergraduate class, and they would talk about perception. So when you look at perception or sensation and perception, what we tend to think is mostly it's me taking in information. So there's something out there, it projects onto the back of my eye on the retina, and then through that it goes to my brain, and then I see something. Now, even what that means can be complicated, but I, I then see something, I take something in. And so this is bottom-up kind of processing, where I take some information what's on in, and then it gets to the top, and I see something. But I remember hearing from my professors, but I think back then when I was an undergrad, it was looked at much smaller that there's also top down that your brain because it has certain expectations certain memories of things it's also going to have uh, a impact on things so it's not just bottom up but now we're seeing that the top down part we used to underestimate it severely that our brain is constantly not just interacting in a world in a very blank slate type of a way but it's constantly making predictions and actually what's happening is that it makes a prediction of what it thinks it's going to experience or um, you know see hear all those types of things and when things don't match that it actually gets our attention and it tries to resolve that discrepancy by either figuring out what's going on it also might update its mental model and its predictions of the world so now i think okay let's say i used to have this cup in my hand and now this cup i see it has a crack in it so when i hold it if I hold it a few times over time, I might expect that crack over time in the cup, whereas before I wouldn't do that. And now when I feel the crack, it won't make any startle or a response from me because that's what my brain is expecting to experience. And so in that sense, priming is very, very important. Now, does it mean that, you know, if we flash this in your mind, it's going to make you so patriotic or make you hate this person or love this person? No. You can't do that much with it to think that I can just prime you and push you in whatever I want, or that if we do little things that if I send you a message and tell you you're amazing, now you're going to go and get a graduate degree and study really hard for five years. But I do think we have to make sure, and, and it's not that he necessarily did this to a strong degree, but that we don't minimize the impact of priming, or we don't fail to recognize that priming is really the way our brain is working constantly. It's constantly being primed. I even remember when I was in, going back to my undergraduate days, I guess I'm reflecting a lot uh, on my UCLA days. 
when we would learn certain words, we'd say, okay, you're primed, for example, if I talk about, you know, doctors, nurses, all this type of things, and then I say fill in a blank with a word and it has a few letters missing, you're more likely to give medical type related terms than other things. And they'd say, oh, your brain is at this moment primed to, to think about certain things or to think about something. And so, uh, but we thought it was a very specific thing, but now we realize you're constantly essentially being primed in, in how we respond to the world. So when he said he thinks we should get away from prime world, as he put it, is like this mindset of social psychology. I don't think I'm totally in favor of that because I think priming is so important and really is the way that our brain is functioning. But I think it's possible he's saying there's uh, lots of studies where they overdo the impact. That I think is true, that we have to be more cognizant and mindful of how things are being presented and how bold the statements are and how much that makes sense. But that to think that priming is something we should go away from, I don't think that makes sense because I think that is really what's going on. So in that way, it would be the future of research will include that as well. But I want to come back to the title of this book, actually, The Quick Fix, because to me, this was something that, as I said, drew me to this book. And as I even talk on this show or when I discuss different issues, I feel at times this same pressure that people might feel when they do the research or people that are, let's say, doing uh, you know, Instagram and social media trying to promote different issues where you can feel a pull that I need to give something to the audience, to the listeners, and it should be something that makes things seem simple, right? I have to simplify things. It can't be too complicated. Not only that people want simple because if you can say you have this idea that makes life easy, that makes relationships easy, that makes anything that people think is hard easy, you're going to have a lot of people that are going to want to listen to you if they believe you, because that sounds really exciting. Oh, your relationship has problems? If you do these three things, you're gonna have an amazing relationship starting tomorrow. And you hear something like that, you're like, wow, that sounds amazing. Just three things, if I do them, my relationship is amazing. If someone on the other hand says, you know, if you wanna have a great relationship, um, you should probably go to therapy, better understand yourself. You want to read a bunch of books on relationships to see how things are going. You might even consider couples therapy that might take weeks or months with your partner. You know, so if we get into all these things that you actually maybe should do, that's more realistic to say that's going to improve your relationship. Most people won't even let me get to the second or the third thing before they say, ah, that's too hard. I don't want to do that. That's too much. But this other person is saying it's just three things that takes two minutes a day. That's what I want. And so I can feel that pull myself of how I talk about things or when I see other people. And, you know, to be honest, sometimes people will get a lot of attention for what I think is oversimplifying something. To me, that's something that makes me think, well, is there something there? Is there something good? And so I try to remind myself, what are my values or what am I trying to achieve? And to me, I have to always do my best to be honest in what I'm saying and to, for what I'm saying to be genuine to the listeners, but I can understand as I was going through the research or when you hear TED Talks and you hear people talk about different things, that there's a lot of reasons why people get pushed in that direction. 
it's more likely to make you more well-known, more likely for people to watch what you're talking about, uh, make you, you know, get book deals, speaking deals, people like that. People want to hear that it's easy. They don't want to hear that it's hard because that's challenging. That's not fun. It's so nice to think if you just do this, things are going to work out. That's all you have to do. So we have to also, as the consumers, be mindful of that because I can feel that too. If I hear someone and say, hey, you know, you want to do this, it's really easy. Just do this. I'm going to be more excited than if someone says, you know, um, I have a path for you, but it's very, very hard. Even me as someone who's talking about these things, I can feel it when I'm listening that I'm going to be more drawn towards what sounds easier. So I think all of us as the consumers of information, consumers in general, but consumers of information, need to be mindful of what we are exposing ourselves to or what we are giving our attention to. Of course, it's exciting when someone says something is going to be easy, but we have to approach with skepticism that not that it can't be true. So I'm not saying there aren't a lot of times easy ways to solve some things. Of course there are, but that a lot of times anything that's complicated or that is challenging almost always will be complicated to solve as well. That we want to be a little bit mindful that if it's someone saying this is easy, you can even check it out if you want, but approach with some caution, approach with some skepticism. Something that I say often is that when we, you know, see someone saying easy way to do this, if you want a good this, a good that, I have the easy way to make it work. Almost always they are either selling you something, they have a book, a course online, their own things that they're doing that they're promoting to sell, or they're selling you themselves. They want to come off as someone who knows it all, who's figured it out, who wants your attention who wants to seem like a guru who you should follow because everything, they somehow, they figured it out, right? If it's so hard for everyone, but they tell you it's easy, then there must be something there. And so we have a tendency to want these kinds of people to be true throughout history. This is essentially any con man or con woman. They're playing on what you're hoping to be true. Oh, you, you need, oh, I have this gosh, I have this easy way for you to make $20,000 tomorrow. It's just, I have this thing and I can't do it. And, and of course, wouldn't that be nice if that is true? So we can understand that there's a desire for us to see this thing as real because we want it to be real. It would be so nice if we can easily have a lot of money or easily have something else. And so that's why scams continue to work because they know that people want to believe these things are true. And so it takes some active effort to counteract that, to say, you know what, someone who's selling me something that seems too easy, usually it means it is too good to be true. And so that's why I was drawn to this book title, The Quick Fix, because it's something that I see as always being a part of uh, society. We always have been looking for these people that have the easy answers, but like lots of things, it gets accelerated by things like social media, where if you want to look for relationship advice, I can guarantee you, you can Google it and there's going to be a hundred people that will make you make it seem like it's so easy to have a healthy and strong and happy relationship. Not that I'm saying it's not possible, but I'm saying it's almost never easy. And that's what we have to accept about life. Life is challenging. Life is hard. Almost anything that we do that's meaningful will also be tough. Any career you find, you find your dream job, it's still going to be difficult. It's still going to have challenges that you don't like. You want to make your relationship better? 
It doesn't happen by just, oh, it's so nice and blissful and fun. You're going to have to have conversations that you don't want to have. You're going to have to acknowledge feelings in yourself that you wish wasn't true. For example, uh, you know, I have some jealousy and I don't want to be a jealous person because to me, jealousy is weak. So no, I'm not jealous. I'm not jealous. No, you're going to have to face that. You know what? I think I have this jealousy that's making me do this. And even let's look what's underneath that jealousy. Is there an insecurity that's leading to this or something going on in the relationship? So having a beautiful relationship is wonderful, but we have to be ready that sometimes getting to that beautiful relationship might feel like an ugly process. It's not just this uh, beautiful thing. You know, people sometimes think you're going to go to this retreat and it's all fun and games and beautiful. No, you can go to a retreat. I'm not saying don't do that, but just be aware that the real work usually is much more painful, a little bit even ugly and not so pretty in the moments, but that's how we get to anything good. You go through some discomfort, you go through pain, that's how we grow and get better. And beware of anyone that's telling you that the path to something really amazing is just so easy and always so pleasant, because it almost never is. There really aren't any quick fixes, and a lot of times when something seems too good to be true, it probably is. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. A big, big thank you to Amir in the studio because I'm not there tonight. Appreciate him for making everything go smoothly. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. Have a wonderful night. Mm-hmm.